Have you tried Music to Code By yet? Well, why not? Here's a comment Joe left on the website. This is also great music to mow by. I like listening to music while doing yard work to help the monotony of it seem less tedious. This past summer, I started listening to these tracks while doing yard work, and they worked great! I could let the music play in the background without focusing on it, and it seemed to help me concentrate on getting through my tasks. Thanks, Joe. And you know, now you can download the entire 13-track collection. That's over five and a half hours of music to code by for only 39 bucks. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we are back in London, and we are at uh, the ProgNet conference. Indeed. And we did that silly thing last night. Yeah, this guy named uh, Dylan Beatty <laughs> put together this crazy show like, uh, based on a Have I Got News For You, and it was called Have I Got .NET For You. <laughs> we are suckers for game shows. Let's, yes. be, let's be honest. You and I love those things. Yeah. And did they record it, Dylan? Yeah. They did. So now the whole thing will be. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure they recorded it. Certainly, I, I, I saw video I saw cameras. People with video cameras yeah. and stuff. Well, yeah. they will throw the link up on your show if it if it if it appears because yeah. I, I thought it was pretty good. It was oh, the closest was thing to Mondays that you and I have done in a long time. Mr. <laughs> yes, and I realize you know we have very talented speakers as our panelists. There's mm. no two ways about it. But the say something funny on demand thing mm. is a different skill. Yeah, we certainly have practiced it for. Yeah. 10 plus years yeah right and uh and dylan is prone to these sorts of things as well uh, <laughs> mr skeet surprisingly quick he was yeah, good he, he was, was very good. sharp of course you pretty much wrote a whole section for him tormenting well, you know it's weird c, c sharp thing. he is a he is an outlier in the dotnet community in yes. so many ways yeah. uh, and you know the really strange thing is that c sharp is not his job yeah that's right crazy. he yeah, has the right like, job i think you he's should see what he actually does for work because yeah. that's just a hobby well, anyway, before we get into the show and uh, uh, formally introduce Dylan, we have a little business. It's called Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? This Better Know Framework site comes from none other than Mr. Bill Wagner. Why, Mr. Wagner, a big fan. Yes, and uh, this is a project in the .NET Foundation, and it's called Worldwide Telescope. Cool. And this is a visualization environment that enables a computer to function as a virtual telescope, bringing together archival imagery from the world's best ground and space-based telescopes for the exploration of the universe. Uh, Worldwide Telescope blends petabytes of images, information, and stories from multiple sources into a seamless, immersive, rich media experience. And it also allows simple and direct access to observations of celestial objects and all sky surveys over the full range of electromagnetic spectrum, yeah, that's going to be the tricky part. That is the tricky so it's part. It's not just looking at it optically, but yeah. what does it look like an infrared? What does it look like an x-ray? Yeah, what do the radio signals sound yeah. like? <laughs> it's, it's interesting you would say like radio signals sound like too, because yeah. that's all, you have to do stuff to data that's to make right. it sound like anything. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I'm not going to go on. You can read more about this at 1482.pwop.me. Awesome, and that's dude. what I got. That's a great find. Love yeah. it. 
Love it. Love, Thank love you, it. Bill. Who's talking to us, Richard? I uh, grabbed a comment off of show 1458, the one we did back in July, although it was one of the NDC Oslo shows because we did a ton, yeah. with Ian Cooper talking about the .NET Renaissance, mm -hmm. which I think is going to be very relevant in our conversation today. Yeah. This comment comes from Arthur Rump, who says, a good show as always. I wanted to touch on the, quote, leaky bucket problem you mentioned. Ah. Since I think we can do a bit more to get people completely new to programming into .NET. Mm-hmm. As a Microsoft technology, C-sharp will never, of course, be a cool language to start in. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's true yes. either. Come on, we got Link. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I also don't think that we try to make it cool at all. Because of all the enterprisey people using .NET, most of the learning materials become a bit enterprisey too. Yeah. Thinking along the lines of jump starts with huge amounts of information, but very little examples. Mm. This is, of course, great if you're told what you have to build and how, what you need to know to build it. But for people who just want to get started in programming, it lacks a lot of guidance. Mm. I don't think C-sharp has some flashy, quick, get-started tutorial with only code and no PowerPoints like most cool beginner languages I, mm. I know. Um, and I think I disagree, actually, because the new docs... The yeah. new Microsoft Docs, they've got lots of little snippets, like ready to run mm. small test bits. So I speaking think, of Bill Wagner. Speaking of Bill Wagner, exactly <laughs> right. So I think it's a it's gotten a little further along now. Yeah. Uh, and Arthur goes on to mention that he's got a blog post on this, which I'll include in the links that we might be able to improve the situation. Mm -hmm. And thanks for all the great shows. I've been listening since I knew what a podcast was. Wow. Well, we started before the word podcast <laughs> existed, so thanks. Thanks. <laughs> And Arthur, a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet, but be patient because they have to go to space. <laughs> <laughs> little Louis C.K. reference there. <laughs> All right. Uh, formally, let's announce, uh, introduce Dylan Beatty here. Uh, Dylan is a software architect, a conference speaker, and a musician based in London. He designs APIs and distributed systems based on Microsoft.net and can be found speaking at conferences, hosting workshops, and helping to run the London.net user group. Welcome, Dylan. Hello. Good morning. Yeah, how are you? And hey, I, well. just, I just spoke at that user group. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like two days ago. Uh, <laughs> Oddly good. enough, I was in London. What um, are the odds? It's so strange <laughs> coincidence. It's amazing how that happens. Well, anyway, uh, we, we always have a lot of fun with you, but uh, you are an, an amazingly smart individual, and uh, it shows in everything that you do. So uh, we wanted to have you on the show. Talk about some of this stuff. Cool. Open source and C Sharp and .NET and... Yeah. A lot of stuff to talk yeah. about no, today. There is, there is a lot of stuff to talk about. I mean, it's a, you know, to, to pick up on what you were saying a moment ago mm -hmm. about, you know, C Sharp never being a, was it never being a, like a cool language with intros that don't have PowerPoint and stuff. Right. I, I saw something the other day that was really interesting. They're, they're talking about Python. It's something I read on Twitter and it said, you know, the way to, to learn Python is not to learn Python. It's to find a problem you care about and use Python to solve it. Right. Mm. And that, you know, I, I think that's a, a really interesting model to think about in right. terms of getting people into, you know, programming, into, I think into any technical discipline, right. you know, people who get into carpentry do it because they're like, I need to make it one of these or one of those. Right. Yeah, you, you know? start with a problem. They start with, I need somewhere about. to hang my tools. Okay, the yeah. first thing I'm going to make is a tool rack. <laughs> yeah. Cool, now I have tools. Now I need to buy more tools. Now I need another tool rack, and, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, programming is, is one of those things that 
there's so much stuff in the world now that that you know we we live in and the way we work the mm. way we interact that can be you know people it's quite easy to to scratch your own itch as the saying goes mm-hmm. just to build a little bit of code that does something that makes your life easier um and i think you know there's a sort of there's a perception of a barrier to entry that really isn't there there's right. some a lot of complexity there's some very high level complicated concepts um and this yeah, that's something that we 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 touched on in one of the, the sessions earlier this week mm-hmm. about people who've come up through the the trenches you know mm-hmm. we kind of cling to that stuff yeah yeah because we're like oh no you need to know how to worry about port exhaustion and how to configure ssl certificates and yeah. all these kind of things it doesn't matter no. anymore you know no, it because i suffered you must suffer too yeah. it's like you have to know this stuff and it's like you don't have to know this stuff you do now pay someone to fix it for you yeah um you know right. there's, it, a, there's a cloud service for that yeah. now yeah, the question is, you know, when you're when you're teaching kids, especially kids, because that's where you get them, right? You catch yeah. them when they're young, middle school, high school. And if you, you know, if you start off by doing all these esoteric exercises, that's no more fun than math class, yeah. you know, where you're actually that's what that's how you learn math is by, you know, practicing little formulas and things like that until you can, you know, yeah. think at a higher level. But uh but programming, you know, we used to start off with string handling and for loops and yeah. all that kind of stuff and for what you know what are you trying to do i think the the first the first computer program most people in the united kingdom probably ever wrote was the bbc micro bbc basic nice mm. 10 print you smell 20 go to 10 run yeah right and you did it to impress your friends yeah, in right. class because you know all, the all the schools had these bbc micros yeah and they'd be like and it would come out you smell you smell you smell and then someone would work out how to do it without the line break at the end <laughs> so it would actually fill the screen instead <laughs> of just <laughs> it on. and that's it you know the arms race had started from that point it's you know straight up to java versus c sharp <laughs> right. that's where it, it kicks off isn't the intimidating part of c sh- getting started with c sharp Visual Studio. Yes, because it's and no, <laughs> just from an install perspective, this is not this. It, they ask you a bunch of questions you don't yeah. know the answer to if you're yeah. new to this. Well, and the antithesis of that is there's a lot of other languages that aren't so difficult that you start off with a notepad or right. Yeah, you know, well, and I, I did wonder if, as a beginner, you really need to start with VS Code, just because Studio is a yeah. tremendous commitment it's mm. so big and i mean one of the one of the things that i was i was looking at in preparing for the the workshop i'm giving this afternoon is um azure functions has a there's the free trial you know you get a month of free stuff right but then there's a free trial that just does azure functions you literally you sign in with twitter or github or facebook or whatever and it gives you one hour that's mm. it Wow. And you literally, you paste code and you click run and you just made a thing running on the internet that anyone mm. can connect to with a browser and do stuff. And it, it kicks you off with, here's hello world. And it literally replies with hello world. And you can, you can use a post or a get to put your name into it. Um, it's like you didn't have to install anything. You right. didn't really have to learn very much at all. You literally click next, click accept, click go and bang, you made a, a web function. Well, but I wouldn't I wouldn't do that if you only have an hour. I wouldn't do your first hello world in Azure Functions though. <laughs> it it's, might so take you a while it, it to figure out. Their entire trial took less time than it took me to get through the license agreements to try and get Google App Engine going. Right, but you can write code. That's what my point is. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the, the the point I'm trying to make is that there are a lot of I think, you know, perceived barriers. You got to install yeah. Visual Studio, you got to do right. this. You got to do I need a SQL local database? I don't know what that is. Do right. I need what right. if I don't have one of those? Yeah, and, I, right. and that's the thing that worries me thinking of, you know, when we go to install studio, having installed every single one that ever existed, yeah, right. exactly. you can answer the questions that are asked up yeah. front. Yeah. But a novice it's actually, 
have you seen that the, the installer for 2017 now mm-hmm. has kind of, I think it's new for 2017. It's definitely something I noticed last time I did an install. Instead of giving you this huge long list of, you know, do mm. you want this? Do you want the TIFF image recognition filter runtime libraries? <laughs> it's like, what do you want to do? <laughs> yeah, right, and it gives you, you this do? grid of, of sort of capabilities. Right. I want to build mobile applications for mm. iPhones. And you tick that box and it installs Xamarin and right. the, you know, yeah, the runtime yeah. and everything. Yeah. Um, you tick the box that says, I want to make Xbox games. And it installs all the stuff you need to do that. I want to make games that run on Unity. So it is sort of more of a, what problem are you trying to solve than which features would you like yeah, from this and, list? And so you define that problem in the way that somebody who isn't living in the ecosystem can yeah. answer it. Yep. Which I, I do like that. that. That is smart. And of course, you end up ticking everything because you're like, I might want Python. I don't know. Yeah. Click, yeah, 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 put that on. And now as, I have As long as there's a space. disk space counter going <laughs> on, it's like, let me tell you how many gigs that is. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, and it ends up being a lot of stuff. And it, again, it gets back to docs. Like, I don't know, if you, unless you spend some time in docs, you don't realize there's essentially uh, a compiler running in the background. You can type code directly into that browser window and it'll mm-hmm. run it for you. Mm. So again, they're, they're doing their best to get rid yeah. of any install requirement at all right up front to get yeah. started with a lot of this stuff. And, the f- you know, the fact is you really can do C-sharp in Notepad. Yeah. You know, if you have a, a, a dare I say it, a batch file that uh, will compile your code and run it for well, you. Well, that's, you know, when I, I first started using .NET, which was, uh, you know, the days of Visual Studio .NET with no number on the end, it was just .NET was right. the version. Mm-hmm. Um you know, we, we didn't, the company I was working for at the time was running on a, a shoestring budget for all kinds of reasons. And they didn't buy Visual Studio. Mm. Um, so we downloaded the C-sharp compiler mm-hmm. and wrote files in TextPad right. and compiled them yep. to make DLLs and run Hello World programs and yeah. stuff. Um, it wasn't a particularly exciting experience. No. But, you know, the alternative was doing classic ASP and VB script. Yep. Yeah. That's no, right. well, and, and today, now it's VS Code. Like, yeah. VS Code is really yeah, quite it good. Is. And it's, you know, clearly free, although, again, clear, there's a free version of Studio, too. Mm-hmm. But small enough that you're just not afraid to install yeah, it. Right. It does have some fiddly bits. It does, really? Yeah, you still got to do the setup with uh, the back end pieces to do your, your uh, syntax checking and things yeah. like that. Oh, that's a few. Yeah, okay. All but, right. you know, it is, it's, it's reaching a point now where. Um, you could sort of sit somewhere. Now. So one of the sort of classic, I think, entry points into this, someone going, you know, I, I want a website. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one, you know, you don't need any programming now to make a website. There are a million sure. ways. You know, yep. DylanBT.net, which is my site, used to be a thing that I wrote in HTML that yeah. ran on a Linux machine that I built out of hardware. Yeah. And I plugged in and I mm-hmm. ran it. And then yeah. um, it got to, I used to host my own email on this thing. Mm-hmm. And that I did just that became a, a slog. That yeah. was, you know, such a thankless task running a, a mail relay. And eventually I gave up, I paid someone else to host all my mail for me. And then it's like, oh, I can't really be bothered with this server. So I kind of, I, I, and I started running a blog. I used to have Movable Type, which was the Perl blogging platform. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I used to, I'd sit down to, to write something, and I'd end up hacking the platform instead of creating the content. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, this is taking way too much of my time. Yeah. <laughs> and I sort, of, I sort of reached a point where it's like, I'm not actually doing the thing I want to do. Right. Yeah. I'm I not want. addressing the problem I sat down yeah. to deal with. And, you know, I'm, I'm fixating here on, on little details. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of those things, you know, writing is hard. Yeah. And anything you can use to put off the point where you actually have to confront the fact you're trying to create something. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I can't write it. The theme isn't right. I don't mm. like the font on it. Yeah. And so I, I, I dumped it. I moved to You're blogger. sharpening pencils, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. I can't start. My pencils aren't sharp. Um, and so, you know, I just one day I decided, all right, I'm going to put the blog on, on Blogger. And right. shifted the whole thing across, started writing and that and, and Windows Live Writer. Um, which uh, Galloway talked on uh, about in his keynote yesterday, mm-hmm. which mm. is a fantastic tool, you know. Mm. Um, 
Bang, that's it. I want to write a blog post. Okay. Type your blog post here. Publish. Done. I find that when you're procrastinating to do something creative like writing a book or, you know, I've written two. And that was the biggest the biggest thing. What I found that is my to-do list with all the things that I knew I'd get to someday suddenly began to get smaller. Yes, like, yeah. I was like, oh, I think I'll rearrange the garage. <laughs> the procrastination list. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's the way it goes. But um, open source development in .NET is now a thing. Of course, it's been a thing for a long, long time. But yeah. now, of course, so many pieces of the .NET framework are open, and uh, it, 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 it's a whole new world now. It's ha it has been a whole new world for a few years, but really, it's amped up now, yeah. hasn't it? It does feel, you know, it's interesting in the intro there. You said the .NET, .NET renaissance. Right. And it's interesting how the definitive article has become attached to that since January of this year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because it started out as we need a .NET renaissance. Yes. But know? I think mm -hmm. this, and, and and now, that was Ian's statement. Yes. And that I grabbed onto it and said, Ian, I want to do a show around this. Yeah. And we ended up taking longer to get to do the show than I wanted. Cause, but he started talking about it at the beginning of the year. Mm -hmm. And a bunch of people jumped on with. Yeah. And it's funny how, I mean, what is a renaissance really, but a bunch of folks agreeing that now is the time. Yeah. Right. And so that agreement started, we're on board and, and certainly seeing it. Yeah. You know, it is, uh, and I don't, it, it's always a question of, did you make the parade or are you just walking in front of it? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, here's a clue to uh, when you're talking about .NET to somebody who's uninformed, when you say, you know, yeah, I'm really excited about .NET and C Sharp and all the things. And they say, ah, oh, no, we don't do Windows. Mm. You know, yeah, yeah. okay. Neither do I. Yeah, <laughs> not a requirement not for dot net. Requirement. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. for so long. Dot net has been synonymous with Windows well, technology. Sure. Yeah, and I think you know that's one of the the sort of interesting questions about all this is someone you know just starting out they want to build a website or they want to learn to learn to code you know as the mantra goes mm. and it's like C sharp and they're like I don't mm. do Windows like you don't have to. Yeah. But like, I don't have any money. You don't need it. Right. Um, you know, it is now a free, open source, you know, really cross platform, kind of cross platform, well supported <laughs> modern development environment. Mm. Um, you know, there are, there are language features in things like F sharp and Scala and Ruby, mm. which are not in C sharp yet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have no doubt that they are, they are coming. Um, but, you know, as languages go, C sharp is, is the one that I enjoy working in because I find it very, expressive mm -hmm. you know yeah. and it's sort of the the way that it uh, implements concepts like object orientation and anonymous functions mm -hmm. and you know we've been having lots and lots of fun with some stuff we're doing at work with uh, dynamics where we get an objects out of a database and they're static you know they're entity framework strongly typed and we're like we need to turn this into some hypermedia decorated JavaScript, JSON, mm -hmm. so we can send it out on the wire. And it's like, you know, there's this, this impedance mismatch. Because over here, you have SQL Server, which is big and enterprisey and expensive. Mm -hmm. And, kind of, and know, very orderly in the way it stores data. And yeah, very, mm -hmm. you know, I, I love relational databases. I love the kind of mathematical purity of the relational yeah. model. I appreciate that mathematical purity isn't always the best solution to a real-world problem. Mm -hmm. yeah. But on the other side, you know, you've got the, the wild, wild web where anything goes. It's just all strings flying mm -hmm. backwards yeah. and forwards. And it's the thing on the other end has to make sense of it. Um, and so we've, we've come up with a couple of patterns where you basically you get the object out and then you're like, right, uh, turn that into a dynamic object. So keep the structure, but strip off all the type constraints. Right. right. And then you can just stick stuff on it. Mm -hmm. You know, field names that aren't 
C sharp, you know, CLR compliant. Right. But it doesn't matter because we're going to turn it into JSON and throw it away. Right. Um, and it's brilliant. You know, yeah. it's such a nice kind of the the boundaries between the different concepts and the different ways of working. Mm. Relational data, fine. ORM, brilliant. You know, use it for little things, works beautifully. POCOs, domain objects, fine. Dynamic, serialized JavaScript, gone. Yep. And it's very, very clear. You know, when you say, oh, we need to add a property or we need to add a, an indexer or something, it's very, very clear where you do that mm -hmm. because there's a very kind of clean relationship between the different concerns. Yeah. Hey, uh, hold that thought, Dylan, while we take just a minute to hear from our sponsors. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at JetBrains. Hey, how often do you profile memory usage in your .NET apps? What if you could automate memory usage checks so that they're executed every time you commit a change? You can actually do that with .MemoryUnit from JetBrains. .MemoryUnit is a free unit testing framework for monitoring .NET memory usage. You write unit tests that check your code for all kinds of memory issues and then run the tests on your machine or in a continuous integration server like TeamCity or VSTS, just like you do with regular unit tests. You can track how much memory is allocated, check memory for objects of a specific type to prevent memory leaks, or compare several memory snapshots in a unit test to see if memory usage is creeping up. Learn more and download .memoryunit from jetbrains.netrocks.com or just search for a package called .memoryunit on the NuGet gallery. And you're listening to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin, Richard Campbell here with Dylan Beatty. We're talking about C Sharp. We're talking about open source development on the Microsoft stack. And, uh, you know, Python. Yeah. <laughs> and all these language choices, too. Yeah. Now, I'm thinking through what you said just before the break there, uh, that coming out of the C Sharp world or coming out of, you know, statically type world is more of this. So do you want to know if I don't understand something or should I just ignore it? You know, that, that's really the line you cross, mm. you know, in the, in the database world, in the statically type world, it's like, I'm going to tell you when I don't understand something. But as soon as you cross over that line into the dynamic world, it's like, yeah. I don't understand this, so I'm, I'm just going to let it go. I'm going to riff on it. Yeah. Moving on. The stuff <laughs> I do understand I'm going to use, and the stuff I don't understand, well, I'm just not going to talk about that. And, you know, the interesting thing there is, yeah, a lot of these things, so relational data, relational integrity, foreign keys, type checking, mm -hmm. compilers, you know, they're all different ways of basically deciding when do I want this to blow up. Yeah. You know, when are you going to tell me there's a problem? At right? what point is it going to be that when I try and, and, you know, do an update table, it gets rejected by the query engine? Mm -hmm. Or am I going to get a phone call from someone going, your system doesn't work right. in two weeks' time? You know, because if you make a mistake at some point, Maybe someone's going to catch it. Maybe no one ever catches it. Right. Maybe yeah. you're putting bugs in software no one's running. Right. And, you know. <laughs> or, or more relevantly, that that misplaced piece of data isn't important. Yeah. And so yeah. the, rather than stop everything to deal with it, yeah. to let it just be lost. Yeah. You know that, and that's an interesting question because it, now we also get back to the upbringing angle. Hmm. You know, we've done this for a long time. We were hammered about data integrity, so we probably care more about this stuff than our customers do. Yeah. And, and that philosophy can be a problem. And I think there, you know, it's one of the, the things I'm very big on. Technology, I think, tried to solve a lot of problems by itself. Mm -hmm. You know, and the whole, you know, the whole startup model, all kinds of, you know, digital entrepreneurs and startups and things basically like the people who do this for a living do it really badly. We're good at software. We can eat their lunch. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, that, that raises interesting questions. There's been some really good discussion about uh, Amazon acquiring Whole Foods. Yes. And people going, for the first time, we actually have a, you know, a, a grocer, grocery food retailer 
that knows how to do software. Mm. Yeah. Because mm. all, all supermarkets suck at software. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because they're not optimizing it for what you want, they're optimizing it for what they want. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and suddenly, you know, you, we've got, uh, you know, Amazon coming up and, you know, people talking about, well, you walk into the store, it's like, okay, we've optimized your shopping list. Go right. to this aisle, this aisle, this aisle, pick up two of these. Don't mm-hmm. go over there. They're out of that. Mm-hmm. Use this instead. Thank you very much. And by the way, you don't even have to check out. We know what you bought. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all RFID tracked. We'll just, mm-hmm. when you wheel your cart out of the store, we'll take it off your Visa card. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How much longer before an Amazon grocery store looks like an Amazon warehouse? Yeah. Where you don't walk around the store. Mm-hmm. The yeah. store walks around you. Yeah. You know, you'll go <laughs> into, you'll you know, go into a little yellow box and stuff will simply start arriving at you that everything that's on your list and things you previously ordered. And, and what's and, fascinating about that? <laughs> I is saw that on the Jetsons the, once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you go back to the, the sort of 1950s, um, I think it was it was Woolworths was the first store that allowed the customer to interact with the shelves, mm-hmm. because up until that point there would be a store counter, right? You know, with a shopkeeper, yeah. And you would go in with a list, and the shopkeeper would select all the items from the back of the shop and right. wrap them for you and give them to you. Yeah. Wow. And then they're like, "Hey, we could get people to do this yeah. instead." And they're like, "No, they're going to run riot. They're going to steal everything. It'll never catch on." Right. Um. And then they did that, and then of course we got the whole idea of self-service checkouts. And, yeah. You know those infuriating. Speaking machines. of bad software. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't gone through a self-service checkout experience, and I'm like, "Wow, that was awesome." Yeah. It's only mm. degrees of hate. Yeah. Mm. I do have, you know, when it works, it's kind of, you know, go and you grab a sandwich and a Diet Coke, swipe, swipe, contactless card. Yeah. Like, not only is there no interaction, you can do it without touching anything. Right. You know, I find that kind of, you know, we've elevated to the point. But then there's a flip side to this. Well, well which before is, you move on, they, they, in my uh, my town, they have a scan and bag. Right. So, when you walk in the store, you pick up a little scanner. And then as you walk around, everything that you put in your bags, you scan. Mm. And uh, if it's produce, you weigh the produce, it spits out a sticker, you scan it. Right. And then essentially you go through the aisle and just say, yep, here's my thing. It says, okay, here's how much you owe, and you're on your way. Interesting. It's interesting that you get you tend to get audited if you only get a few things. Right. But if you're buying, you know, $100, $200. In a cart full of stuff. In a cart full of stuff. You know, they tend yeah. to not audit you. But mm-hmm. every once in a while, somebody will come over, audit. Yeah. And then you, they look through your bag and they look at you. you yeah, know. make sure you actually scanned everything. Right. What I find interesting in that model versus the checkout model where you're doing all the scanning in one location is like you are building up the scan over time so mm. that your actual exit point is shorter. Mm-hmm. You know, they, the workflow on this to me is interesting. Yeah. yeah. At, at the same time, that seems archaic to have to have a mechanical device electronic device being carried with you well it only seems archaic because now there's an alternative the technology the yeah. amazon technology well, the rfi yeah the rfid approach um yeah. tim huckabee's working you know the internology actus guys mm-hmm. where the, the the shelf itself is smart and watching what you picked up what you didn't part, pick right, up so right. you know it just you start thinking about it's funny you take a can of beans off you hear ching <laughs> and then you put it back and you hear what do you hear? I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. there are hotel minibars that, yes. for your convenience, when you anything, touch anything, when you touch this, anything, we will automatically deduct it. Right? Yeah. From and and there's a there's a, a great book uh, by the book is called Dry. It's about a recovering alcoholic, and there's a chapter in it where he goes on this business trip, and the next day his boss gets the bill. He's like, 
what the hell did you do? You've got a $1,500 room, sir, uh, you know, mini bar bill. Right. Wow. And he's like, I didn't drink anything. And the guy says, well, what the hell did you do? Take all the drinks out and line them up? <laughs> and he's like, that's exactly what I did. Wow. I took them out. I put all the drinks. I sat there and I stared at them. And then I put them all back in the automatic yeah. mini bar. And Charged it's just, you know, it, it's this lovely detail. One that the sort of insight it gives you into the character and, you know, this battle with addiction. Right. But also into that's exactly what would happen. I've mm -hmm. been in hotels that would do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, where you... you pick up a, some, some milk or some bananas or something on the way back, you're like, I can't put this in the fridge. or <laughs> I have to move something, and if I move it, I pay for it. Interesting, so, yeah. Yeah. No, very, very cool. But, I mean, there is a, there's a downside. I was going to say, you know, we now have this amazing, you know, contactless payment and contactless everything. Um, I, was in, I was in Israel earlier this year. The hotel I was at had a gym, you know, with lockers, and the lockers had no, no key, nothing. There was no affordance whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And so I stood there and, and looked, and I saw, you know, one of the other the people who was there, because they got signs, but the signs are in Hebrew, which I can't read. <laughs> and I, I, I see this guy, and he comes up, and he, he's got a, you know, like a, the plastic smart card, and right. he just kind of waves it over a piece of this wooden door, and the door opens. I'm like, okay, so that the smart card operated. Yep. I got a key card for the hotel. And I kind of spent about two minutes just waving this card over pieces of wood trying to figure out which one and i'm like i look so stupid right now is this the world we have created <laughs> you are trying like, to cast a spell yes, yes. right <laughs> literally i'm like it, it, and it was like wall hacking in, in you know the old dungeons and dragons computer games sure. where you walk down a corridor a sideways door. looking for a secret button that's there right would be two looking for a secret door. <laughs> and i just thought this is nuts so, yeah. so i used google translate and hebrew and it said the lockers are for gym members only i was like all right mm -hmm. <laughs> that answers that one i could have been there a while <laughs> The fact that you, your phone could translate Hebrew for, it, for you. It's amazing. It yes. is really it's amazing. Absolutely we are amazing. living in a science fiction novel. The un yeah, the universal translator. Yeah, yeah. It's base it basically works. there. Uh, uh, did it was with my daughter, and then probably told the story, said it in far east Germany, where they only speak German because they won't speak Russian, mm -hmm. and whipped out the phone, translating the menu in real time, like yeah. literally just rolling the phone down the front the face of the menu, and just gathered a crowd. Mm. They'd never seen anything like that. Yeah. They're all just that. This is a couple of years ago, and this stuff was brand new. Yeah. Right. And it's like, yeah, it's no, just it's, there. It's brilliant. It's you do get some fun little quirks though. Um, when I was at a conference in uh, Ukraine last year, and they did the conference program in Russian, and then there was a site somewhere that had machine translated it back into English. Oh uh, yeah. And Russian does not have the definitive article. Right. It doesn't have mm -hmm. articles. Mm -hmm. So in English, it's a Dylan wrote his first website in 1992. Mm -hmm. In Russian, that just becomes Dylan wrote first website. And back into English, Dylan wrote the first website. Right. Mm. On the conference speaker bio page. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, I didn't write the first website. <laughs> Pretty sure that was Tim Berners-Lee. That was Tim Berners-Lee. <laughs> You've read books, you know. Um, but, you know, you do get these little kind of weird insights into... There are different languages for a reason, then they are different. Yeah. Right. And it, it's interesting, if you pass them back and forth between different languages, what do you end up with what at the end? What do you lose? End? There's a game show there. there yeah. There absolutely is a game show. <laughs> I mean, one of the things I think is interesting, you know, are we going to end up with a a human language which is you know like a form of english with, where the grammar has deliberately been modified such that machine translation is effective mm. more effective you know a sort of almost like a dialect of english that you know google translate is going to make sense of in yeah interesting well richard yeah buddy guess what time it is now uh, must be that happy time again yeah it's time to announce a new online grocery for psychologists you can only buy bananas crackers and nuts <laughs> oh well it's actually time to give away a d experience subscription from our friends at dev express to one lucky member of the dotnet rocks fan club 
Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. And check out their DevExtreme React Grid, built from the ground up to fully support all the cool features that come with React, like the virtual DOM and state controllers like Redux. It supports master detail, sorting, grouping, paging, and editing. You can check it out and test it for free. It's on GitHub. But learn more and download your free 30-day trial of DevExpress Universal at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Michael Aldrich. Congratulations, Michael. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. That's right. And Michael just won the D Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends at DevExpress just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And we like to ask our guests, Dylan, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology right now, what would you buy? That's a very interesting question. So I, I have a, a specific angle now, which informs most of my gadget purchases, mm -hmm. which is being able to play live music shows using only hand luggage. <laughs> What? <laughs> so, you know, I do, I do a lot of travel for conferences and things. Sure. Most conferences have a party. Yep. And they have PA systems because mm -hmm. people speak in big rooms. Yep. Um, and there's a bunch of people, you know, standing around having a good time and drinking beers and whatnot. Mm. And uh, so I have a little travel guitar that right. I take with me. I see where you're getting um, at. You want a PA system that fits in a handbag, basically. So, and, you know, it's, it's so I started out with this little Steinberger travel guitar, which I basically bought because when you're on the road a lot, you get a lot of downtime. And yeah. it's nice to practice, you yeah. know. Um, airport, and I got that. Then I got a thing called an iRig, which is mm -hmm. like a tiny little adapter that plugs your guitar into your phone and then your headphones. Yep. And you can sit in the airport and, you know, practice. And you can even, like, record and, and write songs and stuff with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, then I started getting carried away. Okay. Um, so I, I found a little Yamaha. It's called a Yamaha AG06. It's a USB-powered mixing desk, four-channel mixing desk, the, with a guitar effects uh, simulator built into it. No hmm. kidding. So guitar in one channel, mic in the other one, backing tracks into a third, you know, keyboards or something into the fourth whole thing runs off USB, so you can power it off a battery, and then all you need is a stereo out into mm. the power amp that they got in the venue. Right. And I'm like, how small can we go? <laughs> and I, I literally, the other week, I uh, went to a, a jam session with a friend of mine, and I cycled. And I had my, my Steinberger bass guitar on my back, and I had a little pannier on my bicycle with the mixing desk and one of those little uh, boom audio speaker things. Right. Mm -hmm. whole thing runs off USB. And, you know, for a bunch of us sat around in his living room making music, it was fantastic. Wow. It was such a cool little I'm going to show Dylan a picture that I'm going to put a, a video, a, a, a link oh, to. Yeah. This is a little battery-powered thing that looks like a Vox AC30 amplifier. Yeah. You plug it into your guitar, and on the other end, it's got yeah. uh, volume, gain, and, uh, and a headphone amp out. And this is what I, I bring this to my gigs. Yeah. Because typically I set up with a couple hours to spare. And then I sit down at the bar or wherever yeah. in the corner, plug this thing in and, you know, yeah. limber up my fingers before a gig. But, but man, I, I totally, I'm totally down with that. Yeah. 
totally. So yeah, five thousand dollars basically give me all the tiny guitar stuff. Yeah. So you know, one of those. And yeah. these these are headset mics that we're using to record the show today. I've been looking for a lightweight headset microphone that is not wireless. Yeah. And literally, you know, I've been to stores, I've looked online, I've searched all over the place. I did find one. They had one on Amazon, which is it was. 20 pounds. Wow. And it uses uh, 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi, so Wi-Fi frequency. And it's a little tiny USB-charged headset that weighs nothing mm. with a wireless receiver. Mm-hmm. Problem is, it's got about 50 milliseconds of latency on oh, it. Oh, boy. It's too much for music. Yeah, you can't do that. It doesn't work. Yeah. Otherwise, it would have been perfect. Because so, if you've got a you know, headset mic, then you don't need a microphone stand because they're heavy. And they don't fold down small. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and just guitars alone, right? They're they're a bit bulky. You need the travel yeah. guitar. You need this, this one that's deliberately trying to get to a smaller form factor. And the horror stories of traveling with guitars. Well, you know. Yeah. At one yeah. point, when you were playing all over the place, Carl, you just started leaving guitars places. Yeah, that's right. And and it was Las Vegas, actually. Right. And um, I wanted to do it in in uh, uh oslo right because that's a hundred dollars each way for sure. a guitar transporting a guitar and risk to the guitar and we mm. were playing at least once a year if not twice yeah so it's worth it to say you know let's find somebody in oslo who's willing to keep this in your closet for a year and yeah. bring it to the show yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. funny isn't it it could be a startup there the one yeah, i have that's not often, a bad idea actually one, one i've thought Uber often, for guitars well, you know, something I thought would be great would be a service where they, they come to the show after you're done with your band. They mm. pick up all your equipment, they take it away, they keep it in a lockup overnight, and then yeah. they bring it to your house the next day. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, you finish the show, everyone's having a good time, there's an after party, and you're like, no, we can't. We got yeah, to tear, tear it down. We yeah. got to, you know, and, or you leave it in the venue, and they're like, yeah, don't worry, you leave all your thousands of dollars worth of equipment. Or you put equipment. it in your car. Or you yeah. put it in the car. Well, no one in London drives anywhere because you can't park when you get there. Right. So. right yeah. Um, and so I thought, you know, you could do that. It's like they come along, they pick up all your gear, lock it up overnight, whole thing's insured, and then they bring it over the next day when you're sleeping off the, well, the after party. You know, the other, the other problem with that is some, some gear is simple to do and simple to figure out. Some is like, you know, and then you're like, uh, where's that Firewire 800 cable that I need to record right. this, uh, you know? Yeah, the, the other aspect of packing up is knowing where everything or is. Knowing where everything yeah. is, yeah. It's, very, it's actually very personal, isn't there it? There is actually, there's a, a thing, uh, it was built for photographers and camera um, operators, mm-hmm. where you put an RFID tag on every single lens, every oh. housing, every microphone, everything, and then you just scan your bag with right. your phone, and it'll tell you if everything you brought with you is in there to go home again, which oh, I thought looked really like cool. quite a neat idea. Yeah, it's a great idea. So, well, we had this nice little musical digression. <laughs> apologize <laughs> and, for that. And gear digression. We... We started off this conversation, I think, in some ways more talking about the struggles that the, that non-developers have trying to get into mm. this space. Mm. And I think it, there's another aspect, which is there's experienced.NET developers who are just trying to figure out open source, which I think we've talked about a few times. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know even how to open the conversation with an experienced open source developer about getting into the .NET space. I don't yeah. know. Did you bump into folks like Learn, learn GitHub. So I think, you mm. know, one of the... One of the unique selling points now of the open source.NET thing is one code base that will run across multiple native mobile platforms. Right. Um, so Xamarin, really. Xamarin, yeah. So Xamarin is, uh, for people who not come across it, it's C-sharp that then compiles to native iOS and native Android. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you know write once, run everywhere, like we've been saying for decades. Well, yeah. at least two places um, anyway. <laughs> and Windows Phone. Right. Yeah. Don't yeah. Really Boy. Um, Remember that? But, you know, I think that the 
that and also the work that's going on now with with .NET Standard. There's been a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of noise and a lot of confusion, and I think the the interesting thing that's been happening over the last couple of years is. Microsoft trying to simultaneously be the big, stable, trusted enterprise platform. Yep. But also, they want to move fast and break things, because that's mm-hmm, what yep. the cool kids do. Right. Right? That's the, the, the Zuckerberg ethos. Yeah. And they're like, well, how do we identify the things that we want to move fast and break and decouple them from the platform itself? Right. The stuff so that, that has to be reliable. Yeah. So the stuff that has to work works, and mm-hmm. we can offer things like you know long-term support on operating system platforms mm-hmm. and you know managed rollouts and you know th- there were the days when you'd have a patch Tuesday and it would be like what do I have to install today? Oh look, there's a critical vulnerability and there's also an upgrade for Windows Media Player. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's yeah. like no, th- these things don't belong together. Yeah. They well, don't. And that's, them, that's us dealing with it. When yeah. you deal with regular mortals, I appreciate Microsoft in the Win 10 model switching over to you just. Going to be updated. Yes. You know? It's just going When's happen. the last time you updated Chrome? Yeah. yeah. You don't get an option whether or not you update Chrome. The moment you close Chrome, it updates. And I yeah. love that because they, that takes the burden off of me to, to now think do about something it at else. All. Yeah. I don't want to think about it. As long as it doesn't break things. Right. And that's the, you know, you get back to, like, I, I think Microsoft, I'm putting my IT hat on here, with what they've done with Windows 10 is really interesting because they have that consumer continuously updated model. Right. Yeah. And then they have an enterprise, this is the enterprise build, you're off the continuous update or you control the updates yeah. if you're in a bigger organization. Mm. So literally doing both. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that same, you know, watching Microsoft as, a, as an organization and particularly as a the role they play in the software development community mm-hmm. um, they have been very transparent about how difficult it's been to do that yeah mm-hmm. and I think they've taken a lot of flack for you know u-turns where you know dot right. Core and then .NET Core standard this and then .NET yeah. Core 1.6 and yep. then actually this is going to become .NET standard and you know while I from my perspective it, it looks like the ethos they started with was we're going to build a really small cross-platform runtime yep. yeah. that is minimal stripped down. So you get sockets and HTTP, but you don't get web client dot download file. Yeah, yeah, right. And right. you know we'll get that running on all the platforms, and we'll open source it, and then people, the community, can build the layer on top of that. Right, right. And of course, it created this chicken and egg problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, no one wanted to port their library to a platform with no users, but mm-hmm. the platform didn't have any users because none of the libraries were on it. Right. Um, and so, you know, I. I <laughs> It would be lovely if that had succeeded and they'd somehow worked out a way of jumping that, you know. Well, I feel like that's what Core 2 is about. Like, and we've only just gotten Core yeah, 2. It's been right. weeks, yeah. literally, from yeah, when yeah. we recorded this. The Core 2 is finally, well, it's basically everything that's going to come across from the framework is across. Yeah. We have a lot. I yeah. wonder how much of Core 2 in filling out those base class libraries was done by the community and how much was done so by the, Microsoft. So this is the that's thing really I think question. has changed is I think the idea was if you build a platform, the community will then have a sense of ownership of mm. all of the stuff that exists on that platform. Mm-hmm. You know, like like NPM and Node.js and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I'm not going to hold up NPM as an example of anything done right. But <laughs> certainly, Let's hold it up as a cautionary tale to others. Certainly, you know, one of the things for which NPM does not get flack is that it's run by the evil empire and yeah. every time you use it, you're kowtowing to the man, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so, you know, I, I think that th that didn't happen. And I think Microsoft were like, and, you know, this is my opinion just based on stuff I read, conversations I've mm. had. Um, they're like, well, we're going to need to open source all the rest of the stuff people want. We're yeah. going to need to do system.net. We're going to need to do system.drawing. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, hey, Jeff, do we need to do WinForms? It's mm. like, no, 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 it's all right. You no, can leave okay. that out. Well, WinForms that's, that's and WebForms. That's what they've looked at is the UI stuff. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, and I think, you know, it's the stuff that is... Windowsy. So, yeah. WebForms was always very tightly coupled to IIS in terms of the programming yes. model. Um, and WinForms was, you know, a shim over GDI plus, which was a shim over GDI, which was mm -hmm. a shim over the old, you know, Microsoft COM32 runtime. Right. And yeah, stuff. yeah. So, you know, they're very tied to Windows. There's no good way to make a cross platform yeah. version. And, of you know, you talk to the, the, the guys from JetBrains who are, you know, Rider is their cross platform. It's a really fascinating product. Actually. Yeah. Because what they've basically done with it is they've ported. So ReSharper, which is the plugin for Visual Studio, right. they've isolated that in a headless .NET process that runs cross-platform mm -hmm. using Mono, Xamarin, whatever the, the tool chain they were employing. Yeah. And then used the, I believe, the Java interface components from the other cross-platform development tools to build a front-end. Yeah. So you're basically running headless ReSharper right. that's talking to a Java UI with very little kind of logic. The UI doesn't know anything about C-sharp. Mm -hmm. All that logic is in the, is in the back-end. Um, and you know they started hitting some some interesting quirks with that. Like the there was this debugging component which was on NuGet and probably shouldn't have been because license restrictions and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I was, I was chatting with uh, um, one of their guys and saying, you know, what's the deal? He's like, well, basically to put debugging back, we need to implement COM on Linux. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Because that's the interface that's that where you live to, to yeah. debug the, the running processes. Yeah. And that's the thing that, that, you know, somehow ended up in the wild where it shouldn't have been and was used in the early builds of Rider to do debugging. Mm, right. And, you know, they have, they've made, made some mistakes. And I think, I don't think it's that they didn't make, I'm talking about Microsoft now, they didn't make mistakes before. It's just you didn't find out about them. Right. They didn't do them so publicly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and right. they caught them, they cleaned them up. It was, yeah. So, you know, What's interesting if you think about, and of course I'm the guy who just did the talk for you on the history of .NET, yeah. is that Microsoft has bounced back and forth about how visible, how not visible. Yeah. You know, if you if you want to talk about a disaster of visibility, you talk about Vista, mm. you know, and the whole Longhorn thing. Yeah. Like that was them trying to be more open because they had become the evil empire, and so they're trying to show we're just people trying to build software, mm -hmm. but under constraints from the U.S. government too. Yes. they sort of had to ship. By a certain date, well, or otherwise, you the, know, there were yeah, there were all kinds of issues around that. Yeah, yeah. But it, you, they got into a situation. The side effect of doing it publicly is you naturally overpromise and underdeliver. Yeah, mm. for better or worse. Where mm -hmm. you know, then they then you had a group of folks, specifically Windows folks, who says, "Let's do it the the Jobs way, the Apple way, where you tell nobody anything yeah. until the moment it drops." Yeah, right. right. So you can never overpromise because you made no promises. Yeah. The downside being. That's not, eight. <laughs> well, you know, it, what if you build the wrong thing, yeah. you know? And here we are now swinging the pendulum back and forth and mm. coming back to, well, I want you to be part of the conversation, mm. the, you know, external community, so yeah. that we are making sure we're building the right thing before we finish building it. Right. And, and I think we, they still struggled in core. Yeah. You know, those, those updates to the original ASP core, they were brutal. Yeah. I mean, and I, they called them betas. And they weren't. They were alphas. I mean, really. Yeah. Because they were fundamentally breaking changes every time. And, you know, the thing I find interesting, once in a while, I, I kind of dabble in the, the waters of Node.js and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff, which appears now to have become, even if you're not building Node systems, 
it's such a part now of the way the web expects you to do your build pipeline. Right? Right, I mean, yeah. um, Grunt and Gulp and Bower and other things where I'm yeah, not yeah. entirely sure what it is they do. It's But it's all um, this JavaScript that's not running in a browser. Yeah, but I find, you know, that tool chain horrific. I was trying to get uh, Jenkins running locally because, yep. you know, GitHub pages, you can use it for static content or you can do something a little bit cleverer using Jenkins. Yeah. Um, so I'm like, okay, that's cool. I'll get a runtime for that running locally and then I can develop the stuff I need and then I'll just deploy to GitHub pages and it'll all work. I could not make it work. Hmm. It's on Windows. They're like, hmm. yeah, well, this works, but of course the this package hasn't been ported and this one has a dependency that that version doesn't satisfy. And, right. You know, and I sort of thought... We're actually, a little spoiled, huh? Well, you know, it's it's you get the same challenges and the same problems, and the way in which the community's perception of those challenges is informed by whether there are shareholders at the end of it or not right. uh, is fascinating. Yeah. You know, yeah. On the other hand, is an open source contributor not a shareholder? Yeah, right. I, I think sort of bragging rights is a is a really good incentive as well. I mean, what what better bragging rights can you have in 2017 than you know? Oh, in the .NET Core, when you ha you know when you could use a system string builder or whatever, yeah, that was me. That's yeah. you know whatever. So it my is. code. I I certainly have friends who one of their bucket list items was to have a line of code in the Linux kernel. Yeah, to have made it through that vetting process and that piece of code lives yeah. on. That is important to them. My yeah. first ever open source contribution, I got one bit into the image magic code base. <laughs> bit. <laughs> One bit. Um, there was, I was doing some stuff with Perl magic on Windows, which was kind of a real esoteric corner case for them. Um, and the, the binary serializer that it was using was uh, sending stuff in uh, ASCII encoding instead of binary. And I literally added comma one to the end of the invocation. Wow! And sent the patch in, and it got in. So I have I have one bit nice. of huh. code running in, in Image Magic. You you have a boolean. <laughs> Congratulations! I think that's must be the smallest. You know, other than the people who are like pull requests where they just deleted an extraneous white space character. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that would be a byte. Actually, <laughs> be eight <laughs> times your contribution, sir. So. That's funny. Yeah, I just it, it is very interesting to present that, and then and then you deal with the cultural differences. Yeah, right? because yeah. again, I don't expect an open source person, and most of the ones that I've talked to, they're just not comfortable in the studio IDE. Yeah, like I I'm used to assembling my own kit, kids. Like right. I want one of these and one of those, and you're trying to bring me all this stuff. Like this is too much stuff. Yeah, and so that's fine because there are alternatives, but the vast majority of documentation yeah. presumes studio. Yeah, and mm -hmm. so it, I think it's very challenging coming into the .NET space yeah. without saying Studio at the same time. Yeah. Well, now there just has to be multiple variations of guidance. Mm -hmm. There really just has to be, you know, these. Uh, Microsoft has tried this before with the personas, right? Yeah. You know, Mort yeah. and uh, Einstein, Einstein and Elvis. Elvis, and exactly. You know, who are the who are the people that use our products, and what silos do they belong to, and how can we speak to them? without, you know, offending the others. So well, I, I always loved that for, for all the wrong reasons, the whole Mort, Elvis, and Einstein thing. And, you know, this, this, this expression, rock star developer, and you still see these adverts once in a while. Mm -hmm. You know, wanted rock star developer ninja. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, I just, I think it would be fun to apply for a rock star developer job. You know, <laughs> walk in drunk, 
bottle of Jack Daniels. Right. Trash. <laughs> wearing wearing rhinestones. Wearing rhinestones. <laughs> Carrying a and cardboard like, cutout of yourself. So what true. do you do? And you're like, well, I haven't actually done anything good since 1986. <laughs> but you wanted a rock star. And here I am. Because, <laughs> you know, most real, the, the people who are selling out stadiums and stuff, they're not innovating anymore. No. A lot I've, of the, the, you know. I've been to rehab. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, they're still they're still out there writing and recording, but people go and see them for stuff that's 20, 30 years old. Yeah, sure. You, know, no, you want, you want a, a, a trope, an archetype for someone trading on past reputation. It yeah. is rock stars. You don't sure. want to hire those people, you know. Yeah. And, I, and I think it's doubly ineffective in the software world today because the models have changed so radically. Yeah. Yes. Like the 30-year-old musical hit, still a hit, right? Yeah, and it's right. nostalgic and we love it. But 30-year-old software designs, like, yeah. look, dude, client-server ain't going to cut it, right? <laughs> like, and, you we know, build the, software the, differently. That's actually a really interesting point you touch on because, um, you know, when you create software, the second you've finished it, it starts to, it doesn't rot, it doesn't degrade. Right. right. It just stops being current. current. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, you know, if you write a song and look back on it 10 years later, you can still listen to it. It's still yeah, the same sure. thing. It's finished. Yeah. Any piece of code 10 years old that hasn't been deleted is a problem for yeah. somebody. Well, yeah, it's we, we tend to think of code as disposable yeah. and it should be fresh mm -hmm. because it, that's fresh. It's full of new ideas and new technologies yeah. and all of this stuff. But we were tired. I think it might've even been you who had a customer that's running some visual basic program, you yeah. know, VB six, that is still to this day running and making it's, it's millions customer, of it's, dollars. It's us. Yeah. Making millions of dollars for the for no, the we have a we have a visual basic application that was before my time, it was built on a contract that didn't confer ownership of source code. Um, and a lot of the kind of key business processes that, that drove the company were baked into this application. Wow. Mm. Um, and the application is coupled to the database schema. So we can change the database, but if you make certain changes, things stop working. Right. Um, and so, you know, we've had this long roadmap of how do we decompose this? And one of the, the great things about, you know, things I think software development is getting better at is giving you so many patterns now to isolate things into. Yeah. Components, services, handler, you know, whatever you want to call it. Microservices. Well, microservices is the perfect buzzword thing. Example sure. of that. Um, yeah. And it's like, okay, well, we know it's old, but we understand what it does. We know how to evolve it. We understand the responsibilities and the boundaries of the system. Mm. So the fact that it is old is no longer a liability in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because the, the behavior of that component is well understood. I mean, one of the questions there when you talk about an app that arguably could be 20 years old now. Yeah is it is a manifestation of your business practices. Is a 20-year-old business practice still makes sense? Yeah. Mm. You know, or, or are we actually constraining the ability of this business to, to compete yeah. because we have a codification of its business practice over here in an old piece of software? Yeah. Well, and in your case, the, the software is still making lots of money. You know, well, so it's, 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 well, maybe it's not that you that I was talking to The software doesn't make money. The business makes money. Right. You know, the services money we provide are still in demand. Yeah. Um, it's just that the platform that we use to deliver those services is coupled to this piece of legacy, yes. which gives us yeah. gives us headaches. Yeah. You know? Um, this isn't, it's not some magic algorithm. It's not like they wrote PageRank in VB6. And yeah, yeah. Google need to keep uh -huh. it alive because it's their, you know, their sort of crown jewels. Um, but it is, a, I, I think this is a time, and we're seeing this in AppVNext, that a lot of uh, companies that have web forms applications are actually moving to .NET Core 2, yeah. you know, thinking about containers, you know, microservices, thinking about, okay, now it's time. It's yeah. time to move on. So yeah. This is, this is, 
crossing the chasm moment. It is. That you're, these are not organizations that are leading edge that want the newest bits. This is mainstream development where we care yep. about reliability. These products are valuable to our organization. Yeah. yeah. And they are actually talking about not only new tools, but new, entirely new techniques. Like you said, containers. Like yes. That's an entirely different workflow on how we're going to build and deploy and operate software going yep. forward. Yeah. Yep. That is a fairly hefty jump. Yep. Um, sure it, is. Exciting. And it's interesting, you know, to look at the sort of the explicit and the implicit commitments that a company make when they invest in developing a mm. piece of bespoke software. Right. Um, I got a, doing a workshop here at, at Prognet this afternoon about scaling. And one of the things I touch on is scaling is not just making the code go faster. It's recruitment, you know, it's scaling culture, it's mm -hmm. scaling working practices, it's all kinds of things. Um, and, you know, the choice of platform is... You invest in something that 10 years, you're not going to be able to find developers to maintain that. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, the one extreme, you know, there are, there are platforms out there like Elm now, and I know companies or people, individuals, who have chosen Elm as their development platform because they know that anyone who applies for one of their jobs is going to be good. Right. Because right. Because there are no the bad, bar is so there high. are no bad Elm developers. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Paul Graham has written stuff about, you know, if you build your code base on Lisp, you're not going to get any bad programmers trying to work for you. Right. right. The um, fact that you and, know it yeah. and says something about you. This is challenge of finding any self-filtering. Yeah. And, you know, it's, there are not enough developers. There are too many companies building software that does not need to be built. Yes. You know how many airline applications I have on my phone? <laughs> Every <laughs> single one of them does the same thing. You know, right. this is your flight. Here is your seat. Here yeah. is your boarding pass. Right. right. But every airline in the world has hired a team to build them an app mm -hmm. to do that for mm -hmm. them. Yeah. And it's like, can we just come with like, you know, the, the airline seat allocation protocol and just yeah. make this a standard <laughs> or something? Right. Could we just agree? You know, imagine you needed a different email client for every company you want to communicate with. Yeah. Um, mm. And so that's where, you know, all these, these app developers are working for those. And every bank and every hedge fund and every insurance company are like, oh, no, our algorithm is unique. It's like, it's not. It's really It's not. the same as the guys across the street, yeah. you know. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you know, there's, there are not enough developers um, to keep up with the world's appetite for software. Right. Um, and the ones there are, even, you know, if you restrict it to the, the good ones, you're then like, you really start subdividing that by technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, and I'm, I mean, wearing my enterprise hat, it's like, I want, I like, if I'm looking for developers for a greenfield project right now, I'm going to look at C Sharp and JavaScript because that's the biggest pool to tap from. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're definitely going to have to deal with a varying in skill. You see the, the Stack Overflow blog yeah. thing this week about Python being the, the fastest yeah. growing, so the fastest growing language in uh, wealthy economies or some right. slightly uh, odd qualifier they yeah, put on it. To filter the set down um, a little bit yeah. more. And mm -hmm. I see the growth in Python in the data analytics space. Yeah. That it, that's what that language is remarkably good at. And right? IoT. Yeah, you know, on a little little client. So, uh, what's next for you, Dylan? What do you? What's on your to do list? <laughs> so, there's a lot of lot of stuff. Um, all kinds of. How things. much time do we have? Come to the end of the show. You want me to? So right along? now, I'm gonna go and do my workshop this afternoon, right. uh, which is three four hours on scalability and you know scaling patterns mm -hmm. and all kinds of you know other stuff that I, I think matters if you want to go from writing little software to writing big software yeah which is going to be fun you know it's a it's a we got a, a, a very good turnout for prognat we booked it as a two-track conference mm. and i think there's about 150 160 nice so i'm running a workshop which will probably have 80 people in it mm. so that'll be interesting that's wow. cool so very i'm cool. gonna make them self-organized <laughs> yeah that's fun. Um, and then yeah keynoting tomorrow uh this this talk i put together about the the web that never was, which is, you know, I, I love the history of the software industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, don't want to give too much away, but it's basically what if 
Microsoft ah. hadn't got MS-DOS? What if that had gone to digital research? Mm -hmm. What if WordPerfect had won instead of Word. Office? Wow. So that when the web broke, WordPerfect were the massive enterprise software player. Because uh, there's this little quirk in history. The first Windows browser ever was a thing called Cello. Right. That's right. I was, remember Cello. Yeah, and Cello yeah. was written at the, uh, I think it was Berkeley Law School. Hmm. It was one of the librarians working in a law school library who built it. Yeah. And, you know, WordPerfect have always had this, had this very, very strong relationship with the legal community, right. and, you know, the legal profession, yeah, yeah. particularly they in the They were United the lawyer's um, um, word processor. And, you know, you're sort of looking at history and thinking it was so close to being, you know, WordPerfect and Perfect Office is the de facto suite. And the first web browser for the dominant desktop platform came out of the legal profession, right. mm. where WordPerfect already knew all the people. They had the customer base. They had the presence. They had the reputation. Yeah. You know, it could so easily have been completely different. Wow. Yeah. Um, wow. And so it's basically, you know, the, the, the keynote is just, it's a sort of alternate history riff on that. Yeah. And it, it's lots of fun. I got all kinds of mocked up bits of clip art and fake product releases and stuff. That, so. that <laughs> sounds amazing. Kind of and fun. then... Uh, after Cambridge on Saturday, there's a DDD uh, community event there. You know, more .NET Renaissance stuff going on. You're just, um, you're just a busy guy. Then I'm going to Minsk next week. Yeah. Then I'm going to Belgium on holiday. That's going to be fun. Ah. And then uh, Poland, Gdansk at the end of October for the um, Get.NET. Excellent. And uh, then November, Moscow for .NET and then uh, Build Stuff in Vilnius. Excellent. And my little travel guitar coming with me all the way. Excellent, man. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Well, uh, thanks for sharing what Thank you do. Thank you very much for having me. Your it's thoughts. Been delightful. Uh, it's been great. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.